Welcome to season four of the Teacher Collaborative Podcast. This season, we're talking about teacher leadership and introducing you to teachers with all kinds of expertise. We're also rotating hosts so you can meet the staff who keep the Teacher Collaborative going. Here's today's episode. My name is Kat Johnston, and I lead our professional learning work at the Teacher Collaborative. On today's episode, I'm joined by Rax Darabal. She is a high school science teacher at Innovation Academy Charter School in Kingsborough, Massachusetts. I first met Rax when she joined the Culturally Responsive Teaching Task Force, which was a collaboration with the Teacher's Lounge and the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Members of the task force reviewed videos of educator practice for cultural responsiveness and validated a rubric resource to support culturally responsive teaching. Hi, Rax. Welcome. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for having me here. So just to start off, tell us a little bit about how you came to be a teacher. What was your path into teaching like? So I, like many of my friends and family members, thought I had a plan in high school, but then, you know, plans changed. I did not have education in mind whatsoever. I didn't even have science in mind. But I ended up going down the science route, which then brought me into chemistry and specifically green chemistry. And I saw that there were so many issues in our world pertaining to health and environmental problems. There's this lack of awareness of it. And so I thought that maybe one of the bigger impacts I could have in service of this world is becoming an educator to help reveal some of these connections and help empower folks to like step into the light of being a healer of the world through science. And I thought about how I think my impact would be exponentially increase as an educator because maybe I go on to connect with, you know, a handful of students who then go on to connect with another handful of folks and maybe, you know, everyone can feel like I could be a scientist. I want to shout out Beyond Benign, which is a nonprofit organization in Massachusetts. They really helped me see that potential to see myself in the classroom. We were getting out into classrooms. We were connecting with teachers. We were training them on how to do green chemistry in their classrooms. And as I'm going out in the classrooms more, I'm just noticing how fun and like engaging it could be. And I myself crave that as a student. It was awesome to always be at these outreach events at schools. And a teacher friend of mine happened to let me know that she was vacating her spot at Innovation Academy Charter School and encouraged me to sign up. So I, I went and interviewed the job, got it, and now it's been 10 years. So something that you've really developed a lot of expertise in is around culturally responsive teaching. Tell us about that. When did you start to develop an interest for culturally responsive teaching or CRT, as a lot of folks call it for short? Ooh, firstly, I'm very intimidated by what you just said, because I do not consider myself an expert whatsoever. I do consider myself a very invested learner. And I'm willing to take academic risk and like find out where my shortcomings are. I'm willing to go through that vulnerability. And I think that was necessary for me to like really try to figure out what is culturally responsive teaching? How do I begin to empower my students, have myself take a back seat with all this expertise I think I got in green camera, whatever, like sit back, let the students bring their assets to the table and help them make the connections to their personal lives and call them in. That's how I'm going to do the work of not only inspiring them to maybe stand up for social justice issues, but also for like those environmental and health problems that we have in the world. We got to help develop that mindset. So how I really got into CRT, I first, I didn't even like hear of that phrase. I just kind of knew it was like the right thing to do. So I think for years I've been practicing it, but it wasn't until I was with a social justice committee that Beyond Benign had in their organization 
that a colleague of mine, his name is Scott Carlson. Shout out to Scott. He's a black male chemistry educator in New York City. And he brings a wealth of knowledge and he also has an administrative role. And so he was sharing some materials and among them included some documents that the state of New York was distributing on what cultural responsive teaching means and how to get their staff more engaged. That was when I was like, oh, there's language for this stuff. Great. Glad to see other people are doing it, too. I got to also shout out one of my very dear friends, Lise Brody. She's an ELA educator at the same school that I work at. Innovation Academy Charter School. And she posted an opportunity in our Slack group. We have the staff of racial justice, like 30-something teachers that are all trying to figure out how to do this work more in our classes from the fifth to 12th grades at our school. And Lee's posted this opportunity to serve with the CRT task force that the teacher collab at Teachers Lounge and Dicey put together. And then I saw that I was selected to be like one of the folks that would kind of help look the resources. It was really when I dove into that and I saw examples of like, you know, what is, what is not. And I analyzed the heck out of that rubric. Like I went in hard, like the analytical part of me just went in like at exactly these timestamps, like all the evidence, boom, boom, boom. And I was able to like really use that rubric at my school. So I was like, guys, what if we like survey everybody and then like use this rubric to like look at some of the curriculum and just establish a baseline for where we're at. So some of that like experience, as I would call it, over expertise is like doing the work from multiple angles, not just within the classroom, but just looking at things from the view of teachers trying to plan and like incorporate across the universal curriculum too. So I, again, will just say that I'm intimidated by the idea that I might be considered an expert because I'm just, I'm still relatively new to this, but I am definitely an advocate. And so if I could use my voice to kind of push for why CRT and how and like, yes, celebrate, I think I'd be happy to be continuing that movement. I have so many places I want to go based on what (laughs) you just shared. I think a lot of teachers are hesitant to call themselves expert. I'm curious why you think that is. You know, you reference being an advocate and using that label instead of expert. Why do you think teachers are so hesitant to call themselves experts on something or say they have expertise in something? I think there's definitely a personality slash cultural aspect to it where I see my role as an educator, as a person who provides service. And as a person who provides service, there's a part of me that feels like you don't try to draw attention to yourself. Like they say, ninjas move in silence. (laughs) I giggle when I say that. And I think about how like part of my personality is I like to do all the work and like push as hard as I can, uplift and pull and like create loving vibes as hard as I can. However, I always feel uncomfortable when the attention is on me. Even when someone says thank you, I kind of feel like weird about it. So I think that there's a personality bit to it. I don't want to take on the, the role of an expert because I want to come up as serving and like humble, not trying to do it for like clout or follows or whatever, but doing it for the greater good, just keeping things moving. Going back to CRT a little bit, I think that's also an area where, you know, you mentioned that you were doing these practices before you necessarily attach that culturally responsive teaching label to them. I would love to just hear a little bit more about what some of those practices look like in your classroom, whether you want to talk about what they looked like this year, being remote, or when you're actually physically in the classroom with students. Like, what are some of your go-to moves and practices that you would like to share? All right. I'd like to start off with an assignment where students are coached on how to interpret safety data sheets of chemicals. 
And so what I do is I teach students that skill, not only for like, in case they become future chemists, which is a hope, but also so that they would learn to interpret the safety of chemicals around them that they may intentionally or unintentionally be exposing themselves to. So I think about personal care products and how the student age group that I work with, ninth to 12th graders, some of the folks come in with a lot of cosmetics, makeup. So it's not even just that, it's deodorant, lotion, shampoo. And so I connect it to their personal lives and I ask them, Do you know the impact of that chemical? Then they pick one product and they analyze all of the ingredients within that one product in detail. They begin to see, oh, this could lead to potential reproductive harm. And we connect it to, you know, bigger issues like the ability of the human race to thrive, showing them the data, showing them how to maybe question things and then inviting them to step into that space where they can question and change their practices if they want. That's been one of my favorite tools. That to me is like a really powerful way of having students understand their role as consumers, their roles as humans, their roles as chemists, even if they're trying to reformulate. And it touches on a lot of the CRT elements where you will empower the students, you center them, you connect to their assets and you engage them in multiple ways of learning, et cetera. Is there another practice you'd like to share or something maybe you do with teacher colleagues around CRT? So this entire year, I am a remote teacher and I have found that it's very challenging to build community with my classes, challenging in different ways than like, you know, before when we were in person together. So one thing that I'm starting more regularly is having community building moments in class. It's usually at the start of class. It's usually right after I take attendance. And so there's already community building, like during attendance, because I know I could use them with these automated tools of automatically collecting who's present. But I like saying each student's name, hearing them reply back, good morning, or what's up, or yo, Miss Terrible. I like those moments. So our attendance does take some time. And then we do our community building, which is taking away from like the content time, but it's necessary for our community building time because if we don't have community, the learning's not going to really be that effective anyways. And within the community building time, we'll do things like that may be related to the class. It may not be like we talked about some female scientists who discovered elements on the periodic table. So that's an easy connection to chemistry. We talk about scientists of color who contributed XYZ to the field of chemistry and to the world. Students you know, might read aloud some parts of an article, will ask questions, will be like a way for you to share it verbally or through the chat. But sometimes those community building moments don't really relate to the curriculum, but relate more to like us, like how are you feeling today? What is it that you wish that you could tell an adult that you might feel safe with? Checking with who they are too, especially because of the pandemic and the mental health issues that a lot of the students and staff are facing. I think it's especially important to make sure that we're mindful of culturally responsive teaching and practices in the school community. Definitely. I know that the listeners can't see, but behind you, in what I imagine is also your virtual teaching space, there are some anchor charts. And I'm curious if you (laughs) would maybe share a couple of those or like read a couple of those for us. I love that. Thank you. So yes, this is what my students see. Like every time we're engaging in class together, there is a quote, there's a positive affirmation that reads, I am always... And in all ways, greater than I think I am. And that's something I've shared with students before. I'll write it. First of all, they see on the chemistry syllabus, first day of class. It's always behind me. But in previous years, I've written on like the hard copies of final exams or just told kids like at the beginning of class, just as a reminder. So that has also helped me personally in a lot of ways. So I have to keep that not only for them, but myself too. And then the other thing that I have is a sign that I made for last year's seniors who graduated. We had like a virtual drive-through rally thing and I held up a sign and it reads, speak your truth, 
shine your light, share your love. And it has a little heart and like sunshine next to it. So just some positive vibes, things that let you know students know like, hey, there's some positive energy being offered here. There's going to be supportive, loving vibes. If you look this way, but hopefully in ways that kind of feel like it's accessible to everyone that they don't necessarily feel like left out. So thank you for noticing that and calling it out. So I'm curious to go a little like bigger picture. What is your vision for the future of teaching? I think the things that I envision require commitment energetically and financially. Something that I think is needed even for next year is more mental health supports for students and staff. That I hope can be achieved in multiple ways. It could be achieved by offering PD for educators on culturally responsive teaching, on trauma-informed strategies, like maybe providing examples of language that you could offer to teachers if a student is expressing like a concern or if they're distressed in any way. I think that's going to be training for teachers to help the students, but also training for teachers for caring for themselves. You can't really pour from an empty cup. So my friend Claudine Miles, she's co-founder of Restore More in Atlanta. Claudine gave a talk the other day, and I took away from her talk this idea that let's get rid of the notion that you, have, you even pour from like an empty cup or like a half empty cup or a three quarter full cup. What if we say you don't pour from that cup? Any overflow is what you offer to others, but every single drop in that cup is for you. We have to shift our mentality from running on fumes, gassed out, panting to catch our breath, trying to just, you know, push as hard as we can for the students, but then like maybe not care so much for ourselves in the process. Shift from that to let's make sure we fill up our cup and then there will be overflow and it's the overflow that she can help guide and like help to nourish others. So that was very important to me. She was talking about critical self-care for the busy teacher. I was like, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I needed to hear. It felt good to hear like another person say, it's okay to take care of yourself. The other piece I want to add to the vision that I have for the future, especially like next year, I think there is also some investment that we have to make energetically, financially, whatever, directly with students, making sure that they're connected to local communities, because I think it's a relatively common problem that there's not enough counselors for students in the school building. And I'm wondering if there are ways that we could tap into community organizations that could be linked with schools so that we could have maybe a rotating set of counselors come in or whatever. Like there's got to be something because right now it's just students try to go see the counselor. They might get a spot. Some of them might not get help right away. So my vision is that we get ourselves focused on what it's going to look like when we're in the building next year. Everyone's coming back at all levels of different trauma and how are we best suited to respond to that? Right now, it feels like there's a big train coming down our way. No one's really looking. Everyone's kind of hoping that it just goes by and misses us. But I'm pretty sure it's going to be something that we had to address. Is there something that you hope your post-pandemic self is still doing a year from now? I hope I'll still have ample space and opportunity to connect with other advocates, other educators. I hope that the virtual platforms kind of stay as active as they've been. And so I hope that means further opportunities to collaborate and maybe one day in person. But I think that we have the ability to build upon the connections that we've made throughout the Commonwealth as well as throughout the nation and I think that we could stand to further strengthen those and then use that network, use that power to like demand change in areas that we all like feel strongly about. Maybe that looks like legislative action. Maybe that looks like, I don't know, having our students communicate and collaborate across the country, but like through Zoom. Maybe they're doing a shared experiment or whatever. 
So I hope that the collaboration and connections continue to grow. Yeah, that's something that I've heard similarly is like in this strange way, the technology has enabled more connection. I mean, it's different, right? Like it looks different. It feels different. We all know like Zoom fatigue is real, but in many ways, like there have been more opportunities to collaborate and to share and connect during this year. So completely agree with all of that, especially when it comes to conferences. Like I took students to a social justice conference that I don't think I would have in prior years. I probably wouldn't have heard of it. I think that a lot of the elements that ended up playing out this past year with regard to COVID-19, with regard to the anti-racism movement growing more, with regard to like crazy climate change, with regard to like all the, the fires, I guess, going on. I do think that there's a lot of opportunity to move forward and build and like grieve together, but also heal together and build together. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask about when the pandemic was really still just in the beginning stages, the murder of George Floyd and then the recent conviction of his killer. I'm wondering like how or if you covered those topics with your students. So last year... May 25th, when Chauvin killed Floyd, there was definitely a response at my school, and we thought it was necessary to create a shared space. Everybody was virtual, everybody was remote, and so we were like, how do we do this? We can't just call everyone to like the auditorium, whatever. So we uh, we kind of put out a promotion. We we put it in all the announcements, asked teachers to talk about it in their classes. And we're like, hey, y'all, we're, we're going to create this space where y'all are invited to come. Anyone in the community, in our school community can come. And we'll just offer a space for folks to process, reflect, ask questions. And within that space, we further split it so that folks of color could kind of process, grieve, ask questions, whatever, together. And then we had a space for our white students and faculty allies and supporters who were given the opportunity to do the same thing. And out of those spaces, we realized a need to have like continuous check-in throughout the summer. And so there were two different groups that were formed and bi-weekly meetings occurred where we continued to process, ask questions, demand change on campus. And that actually led to the formation of the Racial Justice Committee and the Staff for Racial Justice for this year. So now when it comes to the unfortunate subsequent events that occur, during that community building time that I described earlier, there's usually a space for like, hey, like if y'all feel like you want to like talk, you know, you want to just process maybe things you hear about in the news that things that relate to you, like we're going to open up a separate breakout room. So I'll usually have like a set amount open. I have 15 teams. I'll open a 16th room for me if there's any check-ins. But then I'm like, there's a 17th room for if you just want to process talking about things happening in the world. Like if anyone's in there, I'll pop in there first before whatever. So we do try to create space even within classrooms. For this most recent change, we're currently on April vacation, so I'm not with my students and I'm not interacting with them this week. We did have some plans to connect after break to create a a separate bigger school-wide event again where we'll invite folks if this is something that you want to process with like other folks, like we're going to have a meeting and it's usually Wednesdays and, you know, we'll show up, we'll talk, we'll process together. So I do think it's important to like make space for this because these issues affect so many folks in different ways and some of us in more traumatic painful ways in others. And like, I can't just ignore that. Just talk about chemical bonding. Like, like everything's okay. If like, you know, there is a lot of angst and like fear and anxiety in the, in this space. So I think it's important to create that space and give students the option to choose to participate or not. Cause I think in the past, like when I was in person, 
I would just address the whole room and like there might be students who didn't want to talk about it at all that were kind of forced to sit through it. So I think with this more virtual realm, like giving students this is the plan for the class. But if you want to take a step back and breathe a little bit and process things you can go to this room, I think even the option has worked out, I think, slightly better in this remote manner. I'm wondering how I could maybe set that up again when I'm in person next year. I think that's connected to trauma informed approaches as well. Always letting students give them a preview of what's going to come, let them know how long you're spending on the things. Also, you mentioned earlier this idea of giving grace to yourself as a teacher. I do think it's important to acknowledge that we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get it right all the time. And just letting folks know that in advance, I think, is helpful not only for them, but for us too, to kind of let, let ourselves know we might mess it up. And let's just make sure that we're being as open and as loving as possible as we try to do all the things and especially care for the kids and let them know they're loved, the main thing. So now we're going to turn the tables and let our guests do the asking. Rex, what would you like to know more about the teacher collaborative or about my background? So my question has to do with some of the collaborative spaces that I've seen with the teacher collab. I know that I'm super excited to be diving more into the collab space for anti-racist educators, anti-racist teachers, the art one. And I saw that there were other ones that exist. Can you tell me a little bit more about these collab spaces? Like what types are there? How does one join? What's the purpose of them? So collabs were one of our primary programs that we developed in our first year. And they were built on this idea of collaborative problem solving. So how can we bring educators together across schools, across districts, even across grade levels and subject areas? to focus on common challenges because in our work, especially at the state level, when I had opportunities to meet with teachers, they had similar questions and they were always curious to learn from each other. Like, how does your school do like curriculum design work? How does your school do educator evaluation? What does this look like where you are? And so collabs are really built to be that space, that community space to come together to learn and to share. And they're also founded around this idea of like continuous improvement and like communities of practice. So we did a bunch of research to design what an inquiry cycle could look like when educators come together around a common topic or a common challenge. And from there, the idea just has really evolved. So now we have collabs for innovation, which are still really our core like inquiry-based model for collaborative learning. But then we've kind of expanded on either end of this spectrum. So we have collabs for learning, which right now are asynchronous learning opportunities through the Educator Exchange online platform. So that's where the art of anti-racist teaching lives, as well as the Reimagine Learning Collab, which we're going to be reimagining and relaunching this summer. But those are really like asynchronous opportunities for educators to access content, some that our team created, some that educators created. We're pushing more and more to have teacher-created professional development in that space. And then it includes kind of like your Facebook, right, like a chat function. So you can post questions, share resources, things like that as well. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum are collabs for leadership. So this is where we have engaged a group of anti-racist teacher, like peer leaders. We have our Passion to Learn cohort, which is really looking at promising remote teaching practices. So these are educators that we are pushing to own their expertise, right? To like take on that expert title and to say like, hey, I've figured something out. And I want to like be really thoughtful in how I can share this with other teachers. And so through those experiences, 
they're then developing their leadership skills and having opportunities to share their learning back through the other two collab models. So we're really trying to build this like cyclical community of learning and sharing all in service of students, of course. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Rax, for being here today. I really enjoyed our conversation and like just hearing more about your background and all that you're doing each and every day. So thank you. And I sincerely hope that you continue to operate with a very full and overflowing cup. Yay. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Teacher Collab Brothers. Appreciate y'all. Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. You can learn more about the programming we offer by visiting our website, theteachercollaborative.org, or by following us on social media, at The Teacher Collab. That's collab with one L. And if you enjoy this show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to today's guest and to all the awesome teachers out there who show up with love, creativity, compassion, and energy. Thanks, as always, to Teacher Ben Truboff for our theme music, The Dusty Pencil Sharpener. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. And thanks to our amazing producer, Robert Scaramuccia, for translating our vision into a high-quality podcast, even over Zoom. <laughs>